Communist Party of Great Britain and Labour Party Marxists organised jointly. Um, and this week it's a week in politics with Jack Conrad. Go ahead, Jack. Okay, thanks. Whoops, I'm getting an echo. Are you getting an echo? No. Oh, okay. Nor am I now. I don't know what that was all about. Okay. Um, well, I'm going to confine myself to uh, a few uh, subjects. So there's an awful lot of stuff that's going on that I won't comment on. That's because of time. Um, the first thing that uh, I want to talk about is the uh, commission, the independent commission, no less, on uh, race and uh, ethnic disparities. Um, this is um, headed by a doctor, Tony Sewell, um, CBE. Um, there's only one um, white uh, person on this uh, commission. I don't know how many in total. Uh, let's have a look. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. And they had two uh, co-options. The, the white guy is a educationalist of the old school. Um, basically, you know, dress them up in smart school uniforms, impose discipline. And that's the way that you're going to produce smart minds. Um, quite a few MBEs and CBEs uh, uh, amongst this uh, commission. The only one that I'd previously heard of, which I suppose says a great deal about me and not, 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 not much about anything else, is uh, Maggie Aiden Pocock, MBE. Uh, why have I heard of her? Because I used to watch um, Sky at Night um, with Patrick Moore, and I watched Sky at Night when it was taken over uh, by two uh, presenters, including Maggie, uh, after uh, Patrick Moore died. So, yes, I watched the moon landing with Patrick Moore. You know, I watched the Mars Orbiter with Patrick Moore, and I watched... Um, other, you know, space spectaculars since uh, with Maggie, Maggie Aiden uh, Pocock. I don't know what her politics uh, are, but if you look down uh, the list, not just because there are loads of CBEs and MBEs, you look into their background, you look at uh, what they've been doing, and what you're dealing with, I think, is a a section of the population um, that is conservative with a small C, uh, business orientated, uh, charity uh, oriented, and one would guess acceptable uh, to the existing uh, government. So this commission has been uh, compared uh, by its critics to the 1776 uh, project in uh, the United States. I don't know much about the 1776 project in the United States, except that this was a Trump uh, project. And what it wanted to um, put over is what it viewed as, as sort of universal American values, uh, such as um, 
being an entrepreneur. And uh, this is the um, aspiration uh, that black people, migrants, uh, Latinos, um, so-called minorities, I don't know how much longer they're going to be in a minority in the United States. This, this was the sort of um, a project in the United States, and it was bouncing off an earlier uh, project called Project uh, 1619, uh, that was um, established um, under the leadership of Howard Zinn. Um, for those of you who haven't heard of Howard Zinn, he wrote a people's history um, of the United States, very much along the lines of um, um, A.L. Morton, A People's History of England. And I think that was published in the 1930s, although I could be wrong. Quite a nice book. Um, I'm talking about the, uh, the Morton book. I haven't read uh, the Zim book except in um, uh, small bits looking uh, up uh, various questions. But uh, this was very much a product of the Popular Front uh, uh, period. And uh, basically uh, it was the idea that there's a, a progressive strand uh, in the national histories uh, of all peoples, of all nations, and the working class movement, the progressive movement needs to get hold uh, of that progressive strand. And obviously, that's not unique to the Popular Front period. You can look at various books by um, Karl Kortsky, uh, for example, um, his uh, Foundations of Christianity, and you'll find a similar sort of history. Uh, indeed, you can look back at Frederick Engels's, um, you know, the peasant wars in Germany um, for that. But this is the opposite uh, to that, um, where the A.L. Morton and the Zinn and the Engels's histories were very much about the common people and their class struggles. Uh, this is about uh, aspiration uh, and identification uh, with the existing uh, system. So I, I don't think that's an unfair uh, criticism um, of uh, this uh, uh, commission. What were their main uh, uh, findings? Well, first of all, they said that they um, accepted uh, the McPherson report, the famous McPherson report after the death of Stephen Lawrence that found the Metropolitan Police to be institutionally racist. Why? Uh, basically, the argument was, well, from the Met's point of view, another uh, black youth gets stabbed in South London, shrug of shoulders. Um, that was the basic argument of it. And if it had been um, a white individual, the argument goes that they would have uh, put more work uh, into investigating this murder. It has to be said uh, that at the end of the day, in terms of discovering the murderers of Stephen Lawrence, uh, the Met put in massive, massive resources and, uh, you know, um, you know, telephone taps and uh, new technology in terms of blood stains and uh, all the rest of it. But nevertheless, that was the argument. And um, uh, this commission found no evidence. Uh, doesn't mean they said it didn't exist, but no evidence of institutionalized racism that they could find. Now, my own take on it, and just be very brief because I don't take up too much time, is that the very nature of the police force, uh, which is an alien 
uh, a body of um, armed men and women. Uh, they are armed with truncheons. Uh, they have access to uh, tasers. Uh, if necessary, they will shoot you. But this is an outside uh, police force. This isn't a people's militia. It's not of the people, for the people. Once you've got that, uh, you've got the profiling uh, um, of um, people uh, by the street cops. And what we need to understand about the police is the main job, main job, not the only job, but the main job of the police is to maintain law and order. And what they mean by that uh, is putting down um, uh, riots, putting down demonstrations, attacking vigils like we saw uh, the other week in um, uh, Clapham Common. Um, it's to deal with uh, street crime. Um, it's, yes, to deal with murder. Uh, all of that is something that the police uh, do. But the main point we need to understand about the police is, is that what they're dealing with is the bottom end um, of crime. Um, that's in the main. And to do that, what they do spontaneously is start categorizing uh, likely uh, uh, suspects. So in my view, um, if you've got a population that's divided along various lines, so you could have Irish uh, migrants and Irish migrants when they originally came here tended to be poor, you will find spontaneously in the police force, the generation, the generating of uh, stereotypic um, uh, behaviors and uh, therefore how do they devote their time and therefore in my view at least uh, you'll find racism spontaneously regenerating and generating in such bodies uh, as the police force and what you typically find as opposed to what the SWP and, and liberals argue is this doesn't come from the top it comes from the bottom and what you've got in terms of the grunts on the ground, the so-called canteen culture, is uh, a, a gulf uh, that separates them from the guys in the offices, the guys uh, that face uh, the TV cameras that come out with a politically correct uh, uh, jargon. Uh, that once uh, the guys on the ground don't have the cameras on them, uh, once they talk amongst themselves, uh, yes, they're, they're dealing with racial uh, profiling, national profiling, class profiling, um, and um, um, all the rest of it. So they didn't find, they said uh, any evidence, they didn't deny it, as I said before, but they didn't find any evidence of institutionalized uh, racism. What they also said is that, um, um, that through struggle, uh, through uh, individual striving, um, what uh, happened with um, um, former slaves in the West Indies is that they transformed themselves into African uh, Britons. And um, 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 as a result, uh, this commission has been accused of downplaying uh, racism. I, I think that's an unfair uh, criticism, and I'll come to the other criticisms um, of them um later um, they also say that the category for reasons that will become clear bame you know black asian blah blah uh, that is not a useful category of course that doesn't stop them 
uh, using it throughout their report. I haven't done a search and find, uh, but if you read uh, their report, uh, they come back uh, to this model or this uh, category, if only to criticize it, if only uh, to uh, break it uh, apart. Um, uh, and also what they find is that while, they are, that while they readily admit there's a long way to go, while they readily admit there are examples of racism in this uh, society, their basic thesis is that over the last 30, 40, maybe even more years, uh, there's been a radical uh, uh, change. And uh, they cite as evidence of the sort of Britain that they're aiming at, I think very interestingly, um, the uh, London Olympics of 2012, uh, crucially, uh, the opening ceremony. Um, worthwhile pointing out that back in 2012, uh, those Tories that watched uh, the opening ceremony, uh, often they were uncomfortable uh, about it. Uh, why? Because the ideology uh, that informed it could be described, I think, quite fairly as uh, laborite, and even you could even describe it as um, left uh, uh, laborite. Uh, amongst those that were in charge of the opening ceremony, of course, was the famous uh, film director, Danny Boyle, uh, Catholic, uh, um, um, in terms of his religious uh, background. Uh, also Cottrell Boyce, who I think was the former TV critic of uh, living Marxism, but is also a writer for film. If you, I think he was one of the writers of the death of Stalin. So I don't think he suffered from, um, you know, simply uh, the sharp shift to the far right uh, that others in the living Marxism spiked uh, crew uh, have undergone. And precisely there's the evidence of the opening ceremony itself. And what's it look at? Uh, as the sort of great achievements of uh, Britain, uh, the suffragette movement, uh, the gaining of um, universal suffrage, the national health uh, service, um, all of these things and the multicultural uh, uh, nature of the present day British population. It had its tongue in its cheek when it dealt with James Bond and the monarchy uh, and all the rest of it. Nevertheless, I would argue that that opening ceremony uh, was distinctly social democratic. And in terms of this commission, it's laying hold of it and basically saying, we too. Uh, this is the Britain that we've got. We haven't got it fully there, uh, but this uh, is the, the, the Britain uh, that we regard as open uh, Britain. So um, what they argue when it comes to this um, uh, BAME uh, category and the whole question of racism, uh, they say that there are other factors uh, involved that either hold people back or fail uh, to hold uh, people back. So they say that um, as well as there being racism um, in British society, there are other factors that need to be considered. So they quote geography, I think in a completely bullshit way. Uh, so for example, uh, they cite uh, the difference between a Muslim uh, taxi driver in Bradford and a um, uh, um, 
a brain surgeon, a Muslim brain surgeon in London and say, well, uh, clearly there's a difference in terms of geography between Bradford and London. And they cite um, as evidence of that, that if you take people from a Indian and Pakistani uh, background, um, 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 often these people, when they came to London, would have to have to be or tend to be better off uh, in terms of where they came from. I think that's a pretty dubious uh, uh, proposition. But origins uh, certainly matter, and what class origins uh, migrants had uh, is clearly not unimportant. Uh, family, they quote family. Um, um, so they say, well, um, uh, if you look at family, that plays a very important role uh, in terms of people's uh, outcome. And uh, you have to say, well, that's true-ish. Uh, and what they cite is evidence of that uh, will be um, a single parent uh, families um as an example but then you get into more complex uh, questions um so that doesn't really uh, clinch it for me because what you have in terms of uh, outcomes and we're talking about education and this is what their their sort of starting point is is that if you take the difference between the sexes uh, there's quite a marked difference between the achievement the attainment in terms of academic attainment uh, between uh, black boys uh, for example, and black girls, and presuming uh, that there's a roughly 50-50 ratio between the sexes, clearly family uh, doesn't explain it, but you could say family attitudes might, uh, I don't know. Uh, but then they say there's class, and um, their argument on class uh, is an interesting one, and what they say is that actually, if you take uh, white working, the white working class, um, many of these people that fall in the BAME category actually do better when it comes to um, academic achievement and also um, income um, uh, achievement. So they quote, for example, which is interesting to me, uh, that um, um, white um, Irish uh, do better than white British. That surprised me. I, I didn't, um, um, you know, I wouldn't have expected uh, that, but I would have expected uh, that to be the case uh, in terms of Chinese. And I would have expected that to be the case uh, amongst uh, people from an Indian background. I don't say South Asian uh, background. So there's a difference uh, between people in terms of South Asia, if you happen to originate from Bangladesh or Pakistan or India. And that's a question on average of class uh, background. So the point they're making here is that apart from um, male blacks, um, the white working class is at the bottom. Um, so they're saying, well, hey, racism, is that an explanation uh, uh, for it. Well, as I said, they, they don't say that racism doesn't exist, but they are claiming and they present you all sorts of graphs showing you that the difference between these ethnic groups, these so-called races, over the years has been uh, narrowing. Um, and so what they say um, is that this reflects 
all sorts of uh, changes that there's been uh, in terms of overcoming avert and not avert uh, uh, racism. Um, so they also, in that sense, which I thought was interesting, um, they also want to incorporate uh, the question of struggle um, into their uh, discourse. So although they look down upon or um, they're not enthusiasts of Black Lives Matter because that's about now, when it comes to past struggles, uh, they want to incorporate this into their open uh, Britain. So the open Britain that they're presenting as a quote unquote model uh, for other white majority uh, countries in Europe to aspire to, uh, they're saying that uh, not only have there been government uh, measures and uh, measures for the education system, but there's been struggles and they want to include these struggles as part of their uh, version uh, of Britain. What are their recommendations? Uh, they advocate strengthening something formed under the last Labour government, under the guidance of Harriet Harman, uh, I think when she was uh, Deputy uh, Prime Minister, and that is the um, Equalities and Human Rights Commission. Uh, they want more staff, they want more money uh, to that institution. And again, uh, this shows you the limits of uh, Labourism, because here's, here's a body that was established by the Labour Party uh, and is now stuffed full of right-wing Tories. Uh, and of course, we've seen its uh, latest outing uh, in terms of investigating the um, contagion of uh, anti-Semitic racism uh, that exists within uh, the Labour Party. Uh, we all know uh, how that's uh, been used and, and the fact that they were only able to quote, what was it, three instances uh, of it, and one of which which gets dismissed, and two of which uh, you've got court cases uh, against the EHRC, um, either pending or, or ongoing. Either way, uh, that's one of their recommendations. Also interesting, I found that um, they're actually recommending the decriminalization of um, um, Class B drugs. Uh, they recognize that um, um, too many people end up in prison for what should be uh, viewed as a minor offense or simply uh, treated uh, medically. I would actually make the argument straightforwardly, decriminalize all drugs. Uh, if people have got a dependency problem, um, you know, um, let's deal with it as a dependency problem. Uh, the fact of the matter is that the city is rife uh, with cocaine, so plenty of other upper class uh, um, 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 elements uh, of uh, society. These people don't tend to end up in prison. But if you're at the bottom uh, of society, um, there's a very strong uh, tendency that sooner or later you'll get caught and you will end up um, in uh, uh, prison. So they're saying uh, decriminalize, not make it legal, but decriminalize uh, class B uh, uh, drugs. Okay, so what about the reaction uh, to this uh, report? Well, I have to say, I haven't read the whatever it is, 290 or whatever it is pages. I haven't read the report end to end. I have read 
the introduction. And my impression certainly is uh, that the critics uh, haven't read more than I have. Um, so you can see the quotes all come uh, from either the chair's uh, opening remarks or from the introduction. Uh, and that's understandable because the nature of journalism is about instant news and it's only later uh, have you got time um, and the resources uh, to deal with a more thoroughgoing uh, critique. And I have to say, though, uh, that in general, I found the critiques of it uh, to be irrational, um, misdirected um, and veering on the hysteric. Uh, so, for example, equating uh, this commission and the commission's chair uh, with Goebbels is a bit of a, a ridiculous um, um, a proposition. Um, you know, Hitler was, I mean, in terms of British uh, culture, is viewed as uh, rabidly anti-Semitic and, of course, genocidal. Um, these people, um, uh, apart from one member of the commission, all, all come from um, ethnic minorities. And I, as I said, I don't know what their politics are, but they do tend to, to me to smack of liberal Tories. Well, that's my sort of general uh, impression, bar this or that uh, particular um, individuals. So we have the accusation made against this commission uh, that, um, uh, that it's claiming uh, that there is no racism in society. Clearly they... Uh, they don't say that. Um, you've got the um, the accusation uh, that um, that this commission um, is just a plaything uh, for the racist uh, Boris Johnson uh, government. I don't really find that uh, uh, convincing. But what I do uh, detect in terms of at least the liberal response to this commission, you know, along the same lines that um, Norman Finkelstein talks about the Holocaust industry, uh, I think that what you've got is a reaction from what you can call the race and uh, ethnic minority uh, industry, basically protecting uh, their turf. And um, um, as I said, um, um, that is something um, um, that's, that's, that seems to me to be real. And therefore, the unfortunate thing is how the left attaches itself to the liberal agenda. And so if you read Socialist Worker, it will be coming up with this. It will be basically quoting uh, uh, the liberal establishment against this uh, commission along the lines of, we all know there must be racism. Uh, why? Because if you look at the disparity in terms of deaths uh, when it comes to COVID-19, uh, this uh, proves it. Well, actually, if you investigate uh, deaths um, with uh, COVID-19, it does not prove that. What it, what it indicates actually is in this society, uh, the correlation uh, between race and class, and we're talking about some races uh, as opposed to other races and the crucial factor is yes income and the other crucial question um, is um, is housing and how tightly packed uh, uh, families uh, uh, um, um, are 
Um, and also what I think uh, the critics miss, uh, and I'm talking about the left-wing critics here, miss big time, is that what they highlight um, inadvertently is the question of class. Um, as I argued, they, they put forward some sort of thesis on the basis of geography. Um, I'm not convinced on, on that one as a particular explanatory at all. Uh, but class, on the other hand, uh, I think works much more effectively. And my fear is uh, that uh, when the left buys into this um, uh, liberal anti-racism, what it buys into is a, a call, a plea, a fight for a society in which all so-called ethnic and racial groups are equally represented in every stratum in society. So in the language of this commission, they say, well, of course, uh, the elite is still dominated by what they call white peaks. Uh, the imagery is a mountain. So the, the top of the mountain is still white. Uh, but what they say is that the, the snow is melting. And they say, well, look at the present government. And they quote a list of ministers. Well, you can quote, obviously, the chancellor. And you can quote the home secretary. Uh, and you can quote the business secretary. And one can carry on. So they, they readily admit that um, in terms of business, in terms of politics, um, it's still dominated disproportionately by white people. But they say it's changing. And also, of course, what they would have a case for is that when it comes to prison, um, there are more people from um, um, a black background or a Muslim uh, background in prison uh, than um, is the case with the white population. But you would imagine uh, that the liberals would be happy when it comes to prison numbers uh, as if there was a, an actual complete um, uniformity uh, when it came to the percentages of the population. So I'm from just making it up. And we said that 5% of the British population at the present time is black. As long as 5% of the government was black and 5% of the prison population was black, everything's okay. Uh, because it shows you that there's no racism in society and has provided uh, that 5% of the COVID deaths were black. Uh, uh, and 95% of them were white, uh, everything's okay sort of type idea. Well, that isn't a Marxist critique. And the point I would make here very strongly is that what we've got under capitalism um, is a society that reproduces its relations. It reproduces not only the means of production, it also reproduces the relations of production. And capitalist exploitation doesn't just rest on exploiting labor power. It also rests on exploiting labor power that you can expel from the workplace. So famously in uh, Marxism, Marx talks about uh, the working class being free in the double sense. And he talks about the working class being free from feudal shackles and chains uh, the working class is not owned by uh, um, uh, anyone. Uh, the worker owns their own uh, commodity. But at the same time, capital frees the worker from uh, the means of production. The worker has nothing but 
their ability to labor, to sell to the capitalist. And what the capitalist reproduces in terms of the cap capital relationship is not only the worker that works, but the worker who doesn't work, but could be recruited. The worker that stands as uh, a threat uh, to those that are working. So for example, in the precarious economy, uh, if you're a Deliveroo uh, driver or an Amazon uh, warehouse worker, what the boss can turn around and say, well, if you don't like the conditions, chummy, there are plenty of people I can recruit within an hour that will do your job. So like it or lump it. Now that applies in particular to the bottom end uh, of the working class. Uh, it applies less uh, in terms of the skilled uh, working class. But nevertheless, that threat of the sack, uh, that threat of being um, separated uh, from the means of production and therefore to a large degree from the means of reproduction of yourself and a family uh, keeps uh, the working class disciplined. This is the main method uh, that the capitalist class use. And that relationship um, is reproduced uh, both at times of boom, but crucially uh, during periods uh, of, um, uh, of slump. So if we look at the present situation, which I know is in a particular extreme example, um, of it because of COVID-19. I don't know what the unemployment statistics are, except to say um, that the official uh, statistics massively hide uh, the reality uh, that exists. But the point I'm making um, is that these, th 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 this section um, of the population is reproduced and reproduced. And uh, at the present time, it might have um, an, um, an over-representation of um, um, black faces uh, in that section of the population. Either way, capitalism will reproduce that section of the working class, and that section of the working class will be criminalized uh, uh, by the police. It will be viewed as suspect uh, uh, by the police. It will be stopped. It will be searched. Uh, it will be imprisoned. And therefore, the society that we aspire to isn't a non-racist uh, capitalism or a non-racial uh, capitalism where everybody, no matter what your ethnic background, can find someone of uh, your um, appearance represented from the top to the bottom. Our aspiration is to abolish class. Our aspiration is to uh, abolish a capitalist production and capitalist reproduction. So in terms of the examples that the SWP uh, throws that prove racism, um, actually what they're proving is that we live in a class uh, society. And class society, um, countries like Britain, countries like the United States, countries such as Western Europe, uh, now don't export themselves, uh, they also import uh, themselves, i.e. Um, uh, what you've seen, especially um, in terms of Western Europe, is bringing the bringing back of empire uh, in terms of the domestic um, uh, labour uh, market, of course, something that was presided over uh, in Britain 
uh, by Enoch Powell when he was Minister of Health in the uh, Tory uh, uh, government. Okay. Um, so I want to move on. Um, and this is just a small item, just uh, sort of reinforcing um, the argument of uh, last week, which we've also got in uh, this week's uh, paper, uh, beginning with Batley uh, Grammar School and the argument uh, about um, offensive um, uh, artwork. Um, we all know that the SWP and its uh, front stand up to racism describe this as straightforwardly racist. Um, again, as I've tried to argue, I think things are somewhat more uh, uh, complex. And certainly what we argue um, in the paper is that if you take religion, religion tends to tie people of all classes um, under middle class professionals, uh, but also the ruling uh, class. Um, maybe there are exceptions uh, uh, to that, uh, but that's a, a general picture. Um, so, for example, um, if we take um, the Christian religion uh, in Britain, um, that includes, for example, um, the Roman Catholic Church. And in Britain, uh, the vast majority of Roman Catholics tend um, uh, to be working class. I think there's no argument about that. They will tend to be uh, the grandchildren, children, maybe great-grandchildren of uh, migrants from um, um, uh, Ireland. But nowadays, of course, there will also be migrants from Poland. Either way, uh, I think that's pretty unarguable. But at the same time, we all know uh, from the Rees Mogs uh, of the world that there are aristocratic um, um, Roman Catholics, but crucially, what we're dealing with is a extremely rich, extremely powerful uh, bureaucracy, which had the backing of the Roman Empire uh, and remains a sort of Byzantine uh, institution worth billions uh, in its own right, headed by an elected uh, emperor and elected, of course, by people that the, uh, the Pope, uh, the Bishop of Bishops, uh, chooses himself, i.e. the College of Cardinals. So when we look at the Catholic Church, of course, we are not out uh, to, you know, deliberately offend, um, you know, working class Roman Catholics, but we are out uh, to critique uh, the Christian religion. We're out to tell the truth about the Christian religion. Um, we're out to explain the Christian religion and what applies to the Christian religion as represented either by the Roman Catholic Church or the nationalized version of the Roman Catholic Church. I know it's more complex than that, but that's what the Church of England was. It's the nationalized version of the Roman Catholic Church with the monarch uh, at the head of it as opposed to the Pope. Uh, what we also have is the uh, religion um, of um, the state. So from our angle, and this is very much as an outsider, and I'd be interested to um, hear from people who are involved in education. It's not something I know about. I was on the receiving end of a Christian um, education. What we have, I presume, as part of 
the national curriculum, though I could be wrong. But what we have is part of the curriculum up there in Yorkshire, a lesson being taught on blasphemy. How on earth you can teach a lesson on blasphemy without potentially offending someone, uh, I find that hard to fathom. So, for example, at my Church of England school, and that was a junior school, they had a situation, I say we, uh, the authorities had a situation where if you were a Roman Catholic, I know this just from friends who were Roman Catholics, you were excused assembly because all the assemblies were religious. We all sang. We had Bible readings. We were pretty thoroughly educated um, um, in the Bible. So Roman Catholics were excluded or not excluded. I should they could ex be they could exclude themselves, like presumably as the parents. And also that went for Jews. So Jewish friends of mine. I thought they were jolly lucky, uh, could, uh, you know, uh, not have this um, um, sing song inflicted upon them because I hated those songs. Um, and that's what should have happened um, in Batley grammar. Um, so as I understand it, uh, the, the usual course is, look, we're dealing with um, um, Islam now and we're going to deal with these um, Charlie Hebdo cartoons. Anyone who might be offended uh, by the sight of this, anyone who views this as blasphemous, um, either don't look or go out with um, X, Y or Z uh, teacher and we'll put you in a, a different room. And the same might apply, might apply. I, I'm not making it. I mean, I'm not an educationist. Might apply when it came to a discussion of the last successful prosecution uh, uh, for blasphemy in Britain. Uh, and that was under the um, sponsorship of Mary Whitehouse. This is when Gay News was uh, prosecuted uh, for publishing a um, poem um, depicting an erotic uh, Jesus um, and Jesus having sex or imagining himself having sex. I can't remember the poem. Um, either way, how can you deal uh, with blasphemy in Britain, which is no longer an offence, we have the Religious Hatred Act uh, instead. How can you deal with blasphemy if you can't discuss and you don't have available that poem? Or the last example of the state prosecuting someone in Britain uh, for blasphemy, which I believe was in the 20s. Again, I'm not quite sure whether that was a poem uh, or a picture of Jesus in some insulting way. But in general, if you're religious and if you're from a particular uh, religious strand, you will find uh, blasphemy blasphemous. <laughs> it's sort of, it, it goes with the definition uh, um, of it. And in our view, what was remarkable is that it's turned out that not only has one teacher been suspended and is now in hiding, uh, but two others were also suspended uh, over this issue. And what we've had is the headmaster, I think disgracefully, issuing a groveling uh, apology. Now, in our view, uh, we have no hesitation in supporting uh, the right of parents and religious professionals um, organizing a demonstration outside of school. Uh, from our point of view, uh, there is a right to demonstrate. Uh, but what there isn't, in our view, a right to do, right to do is to censor uh, the criticism or discussion um, of religion 
that's done in a professional way. Now, of course, in the weekly worker, uh, we don't set ourselves up as teachers in a professional way. Uh, and our audience, again, I don't know what the age uh, group was. Uh, I don't know anything more about uh, uh, it than that. All I'm saying is, of course, we're not suggesting that teachers um, uh, could show any picture uh, they chose, say anything uh, that they happen to wish. Teachers are professionals and we expect them to operate professionally and responsibly. They are um, standing in for the parent. Parents should act responsibly um, when it comes to uh, their own uh, children. And so having quoted that uh, incident and quoted um, stand up to racism and quoted the SWP who can only see racism, who cannot see actually the question of religion uh, when it comes to the question of uh, blasphemy. I think that's just weird. Uh, then they obviously find themselves, not least because the SWP has plenty of teachers in their ranks, scratching their heads and thinking back to Birmingham. And we're not talking about the the nonsense, as it turned out to be, uh, about uh, various um, Muslim organizations trying to stage a Trojan horse operation uh, throughout Birmingham and taking over the board of governors of uh, various schools in order to promote their religious agenda. What I'm talking about is the uh, demonstration outside Birmingham schools uh, when it came to sex education and specifically what I'm talking about is the education of pupils uh, about same-sex relations. This is what the demonstrations were about and the SWP says well we're in solidarity with the LBGT whatever community. Um, that's straightforward. Well to me what we're dealing with again is the question of something that is clearly offensive when it comes to religious professionals and when it comes to certain sections of the most devout adherents of not only one religion, uh, but of course uh, of other uh, religions. You know, I know my um, Bible uh, well enough, certainly when it comes to the Old Testament, uh, to know that same-sex relations are an abomination in the eyes of God. And uh, there are plenty of... Um, uh, preachers uh, that have um, thundered that message out uh, from the pul from the pulpits, and of course, again, as I pointed out the previous week, uh, Blair's legislation specifically had to exclude um, the the books, the Quran, uh, the so-called Old Testament, the so-called New Testament, uh, from the Religious Hatred Act because there's so much hatred. Uh, contained in these books, not least the Old Testament, which not only has uh, um, homosexuality, homosexuality as an abomination, uh, but also has God there demanding uh, that the chosen people carry out um, repeated acts of, um, of, of genocide. Um, so again, what I would argue is that... Um, Okay, when it comes to sex education uh, classes, um, are you going to have the local imam um, setting the agenda uh, when it comes to such issues? I would say no. 
Um, we don't object to them demonstrating. We don't object to them making propaganda uh, on this question. But if they establish a picket line, uh, we are not going to respect uh, that picket line. When they try to dictate uh, to head teachers, when they try to dictate uh, to teachers, uh, we strongly object. Religion should be an object of discussion, of investigation, of debate, and so should sexuality. Uh, it's part of what is being human. Marx, after all, called religion the encyclopedia of humanity. We do not denigrate uh, religion. Uh, we think that religion, in spite of all that I've just said, uh, contains within it an, an enormous amount of knowledge uh, that needs to be investigated and that we're the last people to simply dismiss uh, religion as uh, simply a manifestation of ignorance and um, um, how should we put it, of um, uh, primitive uh, uh, beliefs. We need to understand religion for what it is. And when the, the devout are asked to believe that something that is absurd is true, uh, we need to understand why that is being demanded and why people uh, follow that. You know, when people um, in the Christian religion drink that wine, eat that uh, little bit of biscuit and say that this is Jesus's bones, that's uh, Jesus's blood. They're meant to believe it literally. That's literally what is meant to happen. But what they're buying into is a big story and, it, and they're showing their adherence uh, to their faith and to their God uh, through, through saying that they believe uh, uh, this. You can see it in many examples with uh, leftist uh, sects, or for that matter, rightist uh, uh, sects, uh, that you're asked to believe the absurd. And communists don't simply dismiss uh, the absurd as just absurd. There's a rationality in the absurdity that we seek to explain and understand. Hence Marx's uh, stuff about uh, religion being the opium of the mass, um, you know, source of refuge um, in this society. Now I move on uh, to David Cameron and um, Lex uh, Grensill, uh, this guy that was introduced into 10 Downing Street um, under Prime Minister Cameron on the basis that uh, these sort of businessmen, these um, um, uh, ultra-rich millionaire and billionaires uh, will better teach civil servants how to save money. And the idea is that they come into Downing Street and they're motivated by nothing more uh, than the public purse and being generous with their time and energy. And if they weren't um, giving of this time, they'd be out making fabulous fortunes. So they're self-sacrificing individuals who we should learn from and admire. Um, hence, they get MBEs. So, or, or in the case of Lex, he actually got a CBE for um, services uh, rendered. And so what did Lex turn around to David after he ceased being prime minister? He said, oh, Dave, um, here you are. You can earn 60 million, 60 million. Now, I've been reading Dan, or is it Dave? Dan Hodges in, believe it or not, not my normal reading matter, but in the in the mail. I think this is be in the mail on Sunday, but I'm not quite sure. 
And he's clearly got very good contacts uh, with the Tory party, very good contacts with uh, previous uh, ministers, but also serving ministers and including serving ministers who describe themselves as friends and allies, for what it's worth, of uh, David Cameron. And they're saying, well, uh, this is what Dan says. He says, well, the thing about um, our prime ministers, as opposed to America, in America, uh, the Americans stuff the mouths of former presidents with gold. Um, whether this is the lecture circuit or whatever, I, I don't know. But basically, American presidents, ex-American presidents, as opposed to Donald Trump, you're meant to disappear. You're going to be ultra rich. You can mix with the rich and famous, but please don't interfere in um, ongoing politics. Poor old British ex-prime ministers, on the other hand, especially if they're young, uh, like young old uh, uh, David, Dave Cameron. There they are. They find themselves out of a job. You know, since he was at uh, Eton, he's had his eye on the prize. Eventually he got there. Whoops-a-daisy. He loses the Brexit vote. He has to resign. Um, so what does he do with his time? He's got nothing to do. And he's poor. He's only worth, you know, what was it, 12 million or something uh, like that. So what ex-British prime ministers do is they go into the role of lobbyists. Now, David Cameron was employed by Great, uh, Greensill, uh, by the individual and his company. And uh, what's he do when Greensill... Uh, gets into trouble. Remember, this is the company financing, um, you know, what's left of the British steel um, uh, industry. He picks up the phone and he rings the Chancellor of the Exchequer on his private number, because, of course, David Cameron knows the private number. He, he's not big mates uh, with Ritchie, it's true. And Ritchie doesn't really want to know. But basically, he tries to get a bailout uh, for his mate and employer, um, uh, when it comes to the crisis uh, of um, uh, this um, um, uh, finance uh, uh, capitalist. Um, now, what is pointed out by Dave Hodges, um, and this is as a criticism, uh, not as a vindication, he says, well, this wasn't corrupt. So according to the, um, the law of the land, this wasn't corrupt. According to the uh, uh, code for former ministers this wasn't corrupt it's perfectly legal apparently it would have been illegal if he hadn't been an employee i don't really know the ins and outs um, 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 of it either way um, it's worthwhile pointing out that it was it was under thatcher that the legislation or the guidelines were changed uh, that the period of perda uh, between being a serving minister and being a lobby, being a lobbyist, uh, were either shortened or abolished. So this is an achievement of the Thatcher government, which, as you know, was in love with business and wanted uh, business to come into the running uh, of the state. Now, if you're a businessman, as well as doing, um, a, you know, getting a great deal uh, for the public purse. You also have your own contacts. You also have your own agenda. And what's the business of business? It's making money. And so, yes, once uh, his mate, David Cameron, is out of uh, 10 Downing Street uh, and you have a different prime minister, 
um, it's time to return the favor. But David Cameron is a useful man because he knows these people. He knows how to pick up the phone. He knows their private numbers and he knows how to talk uh, to these uh, uh, people. Uh, I just think that this is a, an example of uh, what is considered normal under capitalism. So earlier on, I talked about the role of the police and how the police's job is, is, is to enforce law and order. But at the bottom, the bottom end of society, it's not to go after the David Camerons. Uh, David Cameron might be found out, but what we found out according to the authorities, is that he's got nothing to answer for. So there he is. He's been offered 60 million quid, and apparently that isn't corruption. Well, it is in everyone else's language except the language of the law. That's all I would uh, say. And we also ne then need to understand how that comes about under capitalism in a particular way, because uniquely uh, under capitalism, we have the separation of um, um, business from the business of government. Uh, that under f f the feudal system, under the slave system, in general, this is a huge generalization, I readily admit, but the job of your top slave owners uh, is to run the army, is to run the bureaucracy. So if we look at the time of Julius Caesar, uh, this is the rule of the rich. You have the vote uh, of... Um, common citizens, uh, but they have the right to choose aristocrats. Which aristocrat will be the top? And you have the division in the aristocracy between um, the uh, ones that justify uh, the rule of the best and those that preach to the, the, the common herd. And, and famously, Julius Caesar, Caesar was of the populist party, uh, the one that would appeal to the, the the unwashed, the smelly citizens of, um, of Rome. Either way, the point would be that this, this division didn't exist in that society. So if you take, for example, medieval kings, um, they would um, have a situation of that basically they were the top aristocrat. And if they did dole out the job of government to anyone else, they would dole it out to churchmen. Um, and that was on the basis that churchmen apparently don't have children and can't pass on their wealth to their children. Well, of course, we all know that they have children, uh, but legally uh, they're not meant to and they're not meant to pass on their wealth. They're meant to pass their wealth on to the church. The church grows fabulously rich. Either way, it's capitalism that fundamentally creates that division. And therefore, in order to make money out of the state, and the richer, the more powerful the state becomes, the more necessary that becomes, the more capitalism itself will seek to corrupt the state, right? Um, so the state has always been corrupt, but the more necessary uh, it becomes. So that is not something you can overcome by simply passing a law. Let's pass a law against corruption. Oh, that's done. That isn't going to abolish corruption. Capitalism and corruption go hand in hand. And uh, I, I've just tried to illustrate it uh, with the case of um, David Cameron. A couple of other points coming to the end. Iran, um, there are, are going to be talks in Vienna 
uh, between the United States and Iran, except there aren't going to be. What there's going to be is to be is is there's going to be three rooms, with the Iranian delegation operating from one room, the American delegation operating operating from another room, and then a third room operated by the EU, which acts as the intermediary. But the long and the short of it is that, at least in terms of my bet for what it's worth. I think both the United States and Iran want a deal on the nuclear question. Whether they get it, uh, that's another question, but they both want it. Uh, America wants Iran back on board. Maybe it will be a different deal. Iran certainly wants the sanctions lessened. It wants them abolished. It wants them ended. Uh, that's true. So for what it's worth, and it's not worth anything, my bet would be that it's 60-40 for a deal. Both sides want a deal, and that's what we need to understand. Um, Yasmin, needless to say, will be writing an article um, on the question uh, for the paper uh, this week. Um, so look, we can look to that uh, for further details. What are Conway's gonna do later this evening? Um, well, I know nowadays you get things like iPlayer and whatever else they're called for all sorts of stations. But comrades might be interested. I, I don't know anything more about it other than what I read in my favorite paper, the Daily Mail. Um, here's, a, here's a something to look forward to. It's got Russian spies. It's got the KGB. It's got the Nazis. It's got royalty. What more could you want if you're British? It's got everything that we all love. And this is an interesting story. Uh, this is about, um, and those of us that are of a certain age will remember him. This is of a certain guy called Anthony Blunt. And Anthony Blunt, if you looked at him, was a tall, aristocratic looking guy. Uh, a Cambridge uh, graduate whose uh, day job was the custodian. That's just me, me making up the, uh, the word, but basically the custodian of the Queen's paintings. He was an expert in painting and you can see pictures of him uh, in front of some beautiful Renaissance um, portrait with the Queen and no doubt he's explaining uh, the finer brushstrokes to her madge because of course she's got a fabulous um, art uh, collection. Well, in 1979, there'd been rumors for as far back as you wanted to go of Cambridge spies. And uh, we, know, uh, we know that because some of them turned up in Moscow and say, I used to be an MI6 agent. So Kim Philby, for example, was head um, of the MI6's Middle East uh, division. He ran uh, MI6, British Secret Service abroad in the Middle East, and the British were really worried, and the Americans were certainly worried, uh, because all these British agents kept being arrested. Why is this going on? Well, anyone who's read John Le Carre know uh, that it's someone up top. And they investigated this guy. They interviewed him. I think the Americans said, actually, it's Kim Bloody Philby. And the story goes for what it's worth, and I think it is worth something. They interviewed him, 
And they said, but yeah, but he can't be a spy. I don't know what school he went to, but I'm just guessing Eton or somewhere like that. But no, this guy can't, can't be a spy because he went to Eton or Harrow and then Cambridge. So he can't possibly be a spy. He's not German or anything like that. Well, anyway, the story went that there are many more spies uh, and there were. So there was always this stuff about the fourth man. You know, you've heard of um, Stan was telling me that you know, I was talking to him last Monday. Whenever, no, it was when we we're dealing with the paper. So I've just been watching this great film, The Third Man uh, by uh, a Green. Uh, great film. Harry Lyme and all the rest of it. Anyway, the long story, the long, uh, the short of it was that there was not only one spy, there were two spies, there were three spies, there were four spies, and there were there was a fifth man. And in 1979, Margaret Thatcher got up in Parliament and named Anthony Blunt the keeper of the Queen's paintings as the fifth man. Uh, Anthony resigned. Uh, his post, and I think he died a, a few years uh, later. Um, anyway, yeah, he was the fifth man. Now, what's the story about? Well, the story that uh, Channel 4 will be, will be broadcasting is one of the jobs that uh, Anthony did uh, for the comrades out there in Moscow was presumably um, photograph 4,000 letters um, that had been sent um, by uh, the Dukes of Windsor and Kent um, to, I think, um, I think, um, Prince Philip of Hesse. You'll have to see the program uh, to see the ins and outs of it. Um, I think he was related to Victoria, who was one of the daughters of Queen Victoria. You know how these uh, families uh, were completely um, intertwined. Either way, uh, the Dukes of Windsor, I remember that was the future King of England, uh, the Duke of Kent uh, was uh, killed in an air crash in 1942. These are Elizabeth Windsor's uncles, right? So it's the Queen's um, um, uncles. Um, and in the 1930s, they were writing uh, to this Prince Philip of Hesse, who wasn't just a supporter of Hitler, but was uh, an active member, well, active, how can you not be active? He was a member of the SS, and he worked uh, at a high level uh, for the Nazi government. Well, they weren't just writing to some distant cousin saying, well, it's going very well in Britain, and uh, how are things in Germany, uh, Philip? They were actually writing to him um, you know, a continuous correspondence, basically saying we love what's going on in Germany. We admire Adolf Hitler. How you are dealing with these commie bastards and Jewish scum, uh, we very much want to emulate here in Britain. And so what happened is that um, MI5, this is the domestic service, i.e. Anthony Blunt, uh, with the blessing of the government was sent over to Germany uh, to retrieve these letters, right? So thus far, thus clear. What Anthony did, smart guy, is photographed them and um, met his contact uh, from the Russian embassy 
and the photographs of these 4,000 letters went back in a diplomatic bag uh, to Moscow. So Moscow knew all about the royal family uh, and their Nazi sympathies. And as I understand it from my Daily Mail, um, in this uh, documentary, uh, the interviewer asked some uh, former Soviet agent, I think it's Olegeski or someone like that, well, couldn't the KGB have used this for blackmail? And he turns around apparently and says, oh, no, we wouldn't do such a thing. Well, <laughs> you have to laugh, uh, uh, don't you? Now, I don't know whether they did or whether they didn't. Uh, all we know is that Edward VIII was, yes. uh, pun, someone heckled. Anyway, all we know is that the Duke of Windsor uh, was pensioned off. He, he went, and I think, spent World War II in uh, Barbados or somewhere, somewhere like that. Um, as I said, the Duke of Kent was killed, I'm sure not deliberately, but he died in a, in a plane crash. Nevertheless, you can see, if you go and Google it, pictures of her Madge, along with her little sister, in the garden, I'm guessing, of uh, Buckingham Palace, doing the stiff arm salute. Now, people tell us that that was a joke. Uh, I think that these letters show you that was no joke. Uh, that what we know of the ruling classes in Britain, including Winston Churchill, that when Mussolini came to power in the early 20s, when Hitler came to power in the early 30s, that was welcomed by the Tory party. Um, and so you had a whole wing of the Tory party. And it was only later, um, as the 30s developed, and uh, Churchill, as a lone figure in the Tory party, saw the Nazi regime as a threat to the British Empire. Did he break uh, from that consensus of either appeasing or actively encouraging the Nazi regime because they thought it would attack to the east. And that was what Hitler said in Mein Kampf, that we want our version of India uh, to the east. Uh, we want our living space. And this will be at the expense of the Reds and the Slavs. And the Slavs will be reduced to a slave class, but we will crush our Reds. Uh, that's what he said in Mein Kampf. And as I said, the ruling class welcomed that message until uh, Hitler started arming uh, and started, it started to appear at least to the uh, foremost thinkers uh, that he might be a threat to the British Empire. And remember Hitler, no, excuse me, Churchill was in a minority in the Tory party uh, when he became prime minister. And it was a situation of the war starts and, um, Chamberlain can't hack it. His policies come to tatters uh, with the invasion of Poland and uh, the piece of paper, and we've done a peace deal. And it's the Labour Party is the one that supports a Churchill government, not because of his past. He's a vicious class warrior, but is seen as someone who will actually conduct a serious war against Hitler, Germany, of where the Tories uh, would have appeased or gone for a rotten peace. Uh, with Germany. So anyway, um, it might be worth a look, um, not least given um, the present day ideology of World War II being our finest hour and Britain being an anti-racist uh, society. This is something 
a very recent invention. Um, I agree with the commission on that. Uh, this is not only being the result of changes above, this is a result of us, ordinary working class people struggling. That's how we got uh, the NHS. It wasn't delivered from on high. It was a concession. Uh, that's what needs to be um, uh, understood. And in that sense, uh, yes, Britain didn't fight an anti-Nazi war. It fought an imperialist war. It fought uh, um, to fend off Germany's attempt to become the global hegemon, but had to do a deal with the United States. And the deal with the United States is that we'll be your number one ally. We'll be the number two imperial power uh, on the earth uh, if we peacefully concede uh, it to you. That's all.